0: Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, this is the word of our Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There in the last few months have been many, many new people who have come to IBC and uh, And many have asked, what kind of church is this? What kind of church is Emmanuel? What are we like? What's our philosophy of ministry kind of questions? And so I want to look at these two verses this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, to sort of answer that and to give you a bigger picture of what drives Emmanuel Bible Church and what makes our church distinct maybe from other churches in the area. But to begin, I first want to address what the Lord is doing through his universal church. To understand rightly what is happening at any local church, you need to have a little bit of a bigger picture and understand what God is doing through his universal church. And of course... Universal church is just a phrase that means every true believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who's been baptized by the Holy Spirit, regenerated through faith in Christ, is part of his universal church. And every person who's part of the universal church ought to be part of a local church. But I want to begin by talking about the universal church, the body of Christ in the world. It should manifest itself through local congregations where believers who have faith in Christ join themselves to a different congregation where they grow and they do Christian life together. With that in mind, do you understand that the Christian church is the only organization, the only institution, the only entity in the whole world that God has promised he will, bl- he will bless and he will build? This is it. God has not promised he would bless and build a nation or a social club or a people group, but he has promised that he will bless and he will build his church. The church is the place on earth where the gathering of true believers takes place. We are drawn together in the church. It's the place on earth where believers get together to worship Christ. It's the focal point of worship. Thus, the church is the most precious assembly on earth. And there is no other group of people on the earth that can say this. We gather together as Christ's children because we are bought by the blood of Christ. There is no other organization in the world that can say that they are precious because Jesus paid for them through his own death, his own blood that he shed. The church proclaims the forgiveness of sins. And thus, according to Matthew 16, the church is the place on earth where heaven is most reflected. In heaven, you will be freed from the power of sin and the the presence of sin, of course, being removed from you as well. On earth, you get to live that out in the, the frailest shadow, the most feeble shadow, but nevertheless, the strongest shadow there is on earth. You get to live out that heavenly reality of being forgiven. It is forgiven people together, worshiping together. The church is ultimately the place where Jesus will proclaim his triumph over the nations of the world. Because it reflects heaven, it's the gathering of worshipers. When Jesus returns at the second coming, he will reign in judgment over the nations of the world and his church will be with him, reigning with him. The church is the realm of true spiritual fellowship. Again, there's no other organization on earth that exists for believers who are like-minded and put together into one body to fellowship with one another, encourage one another, and provoke one another towards godliness. The church is the proclaimer of divine truth. It's the protector of truth. First Timothy 3 verse 15 says this, that the word of God has been delivered, or at the end of Jude, the word of God has been delivered once for all to the saints. The church then protects and defends the word of God as it preaches and proclaims it. The church is the chief place for spiritual growth in the world. If you want to grow spiritually, it's going to happen in the church because it's where the, the body is. It's where people come together to be convicted of sin, to have the word of God taught and to grow In godliness, you know, unless you're a pastor, unless you work at the church, you're not going to show up at work one week and your boss is going to have like an emergency meeting and, you know, in the break room, everybody on your team in the break room, open your Bibles to Ephesians 4 and let's have a sermon on Ephesians 4. That's not going to happen in the workplace. But that's what your soul needs to grow spiritually. And that's why the church is the place where spiritual growth happens. Beyond that, the church is the place for the launching of global evangelization. Missionaries are sent from the church. They're raised up in the church. They're sent out by the church to the world which needs the church. And thus the church is the environment where strong spiritual leadership develops and matures. This is the place where godly men and pastors are cultivated and raised and nurtured and then sent out into the world. I I say all this because the church, of course gets a bad rap from the world. The world doesn't respect the church, and so it's, the, church is always hur- the world is always hurling accusations against the church, and it's easy for our minds to be overwhelmed with that and us to start to second-guess the beauty of the church and second-guess what it is so precious the Lord is doing in the world through the church. And so I want you to have the big picture here, that in the world, the Lord is using the church in a unique way because it is the only organization or institution or body or collection of people that is anywhere even close To like this, the Lord loves the church and proclaims that it is his bride. He gives himself up for her to nurture her and to sanctify her and present us spotless and faultless before the very throne of God above. So that's what's happening in the universal church. In light of that, what about this particular local church, Emmanuel Bible Church? And so, what makes us distinct? Where do we fit in in that? And I want to do this first by. Negatives. We'll get to positives later. But I want to begin by saying what Emmanuel Bible Church is not, what our philosophy of ministry is not. And I know it's, you know, some might say oh, it's better to do what it is and what the positive is versus what it's not. And there's advantages both ways. But I think it's just going to be more clear when we get to the positives if you first have in mind what I'm saying we're a church that we're not like. First of all, we're not a seeker-sensitive church. And the seeker-sensitive is a... Phrase that is often used in evangelicalism to describe a whole massive movement of churches that builds itself around uh, accommodating those that aren't Christians into the church. Then you get everything in the spectrum from pastors that say the best way to build a church is to do a survey of the community. Find out what it is people are looking in the church, looking for in a church, and build that. I mean, the best-selling books on church growth or church philosophy of ministry all imbibe this. They all teach this. The purpose-driven church probably being the most... Uh, The best-selling Christian book about this of all time, probably. And that's what it teaches. You know, do a survey. Figure out what what people are in Springfield, Virginia or Alexandria, Virginia that don't go to church and ask them what they would like in a church and then put that in the church to bring them to church. Is that making sense? Because as I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't make sense, but that's... That's the seeker-sensitive church. There's this idea that there are those who are seeking for God. It's just that the church is keeping them away from God. And so if you build a church that gets around that, then you will have them meeting the Lord in the church. And we're not that kind of church because that church, I think, is a fool's errand. There are not people that in that sense are seeking for God. No one seeks for God, the Bible says. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, our sin separates from him. We're in darkness without Christ and we're running from the light, not running to the light. And by the way, at a practical level, if you build a church that will make non-believers comfortable in church, it's not going to be a church that will make believers mature. It's not gonna happen. And this is, of course, the legacy of the Seeker Sensitive Church is you have big churches with lots of campuses and lots of sites and lots of activity that 10, 15, 20 years into it, they realize... We're not making mature believers. And that's not me criticizing them from the outside. That's the leaders of the whole seeker-sensitive movement have fessed up to that and said, you know, the weakness of their church is that they're not developing missionaries or pastors. They're not making mature followers of Jesus Christ. Well, no kidding. You know, I'm coaching soccer right now, and it would be silly of me for the, to design my soccer practice around what would be helpful to football players. What would attract football players to the soccer team? What kind of things football players need to know? And I'm coaching football on the soccer field. And at the end of the season, we don't win any games. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not making good soccer players. That's because you're doing drills for the wrong sports, genius. So we're not a seeker-sensitive church. We're not a church that pursues cultural transformation. We don't take our calling, our objective in this world to transform society, to eliminate poverty, to transform the arts or the culture. There's many big churches with famous pastors. as You might know that that's their mission statement, to transform society, to eliminate poverty, to you know, advance justice or whatnot. Um, We're not about cultural transformation. We're not about political activism. It's not our objective or agenda to get certain candidates or certain parties elected. That's not what God has called us to do, and we're not down with that approach to church. We are not uh, about designing some kind of program where non-believers would be comfortable. I mean, I hope non-believers do come to church, by the way. I hope they do, and I hope they hear the gospel, and I hope they're convicted by their sin, and I hope they hear worship and are convicted by their lack of it in their own life, but You know, I hope they're not comfortable also. I mean, I hope they, if a non-believer comes to church, and I hope there are some coming, again, as I just said, but I hope they're looking around and they're singing songs with complex lyrics. And it's hard to follow those songs if you don't know Jesus. It's hard to work from God the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit into the world like those last few songs we sang did. It's hard to track with if you're not a believer with ears to hear. It's hard, I mean, Dan's prayer was long. I hope non-believers here are like, man, is that guy still talking? (laughs) And the answer is yes, he's talking to God. That's who he's talking to. I hope you're not comfortable with that. You know, I love that we read scripture, long psalms. And it just, we're reading, you know, five minutes to read the psalm. And non-believer's like, the guy is still reading, yes. (laughs) The sermons should be longer, though. I'll grant that. You're right. (laughs) They should be longer. I'll work on that. We're not a church that's driven by numbers. We're not trying to grow the biggest or the best or the, the baddest, whatever adjective you want to use, church in the block. That's not, we're not a self-help church. We're not designing a church to help you feel better about yourself. We're not primarily a program-driven church. We don't design a, a, a church or church ministries to exist to you know, funnel programs out and to host programs. We have programs, but that's not what drives us. So, what does drive us in? What's the positive side of this? Our philosophy of ministry largely comes from Ephesians four verses eleven, really all the way down through fourteen. But this morning, I want to focus on verses eleven and twelve. The context of this little passage here about our philosophy of ministry is that Jesus has just defeated the world. Is Ephesians four verses eleven down through fourteen? Jesus has defeated the world. He's defeated sin. He's defeated the death. He's defeated the devil. He's defeated the grave. He died on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sin in his own body. God poured out his own triune wrath on Jesus Christ. He suffered under the wrath of God, bearing the penalty for our sin, paying for it. So he has defeated the power of sin. He then goes down to the grave. His soul descends to Sheol. He liberates those who had died in faith before and sends them up to victory. And so he is in that sense, literally conquered the grave. He has freed those who are under the power of death. He then resurrects back on earth, claiming his body, uh, eliminating the fear of death in the grave. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O grave, is thy sting? The sting of death is swallowed up by the resurrection of Christ. He has defeated and conquered those enemies. And he now ascends to heaven. He rises up to heaven, bodily resurrection on earth, bodily ascension up to heaven, where he remains in heaven at this very moment making intercession for us. And the context here in Ephesians 4 is that as he ascends to heaven, he's distributing gifts to people on the earth. This is how he's celebrating or proclaiming his victory. It was common in the Greek or Roman empires for when there's a military victory to send a runner out who announces the victory. And sometimes they would even share the spoils of victory. When the king arrives, he would share all the spoils with his loyal subjects. They get the benefit of their leader's victory. And that's what's happening in Ephesians 4. Jesus has conquered sin, the grave, and death. And now he is celebrating his victory by giving us gifts. Why do we get gifts? We didn't fight the battle we didn't win the war we didn't defeat death or the grave or we weren't crucified for sin we didn't bear one another's sins on the cross to bear the wrath of God Jesus did that but through faith we're united to Christ and so we receive the gifts that he has and he shares them with us so what's happening on the earth as he ascends into heaven he plants his victory flag on earth he he digs the hole and plants his flag on earth to proclaim his victory over the earth and over sin and hell that flag is flown in the church. The church is that proclamation of victory. The church is the, the existence of the church is proclaiming to the devil and to the power of sin and death in the grave that Jesus won. Because look, the church is here. The devil tried to stop it and he was defeated. And now the church's very existence is a proclamation of victory. Jesus then gives gifts, namely spiritual gifts, to the church, to build the church. As we encourage one another and minister with one another, the church is built. So as the church is built, we are proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and hell. And we looked at spiritual gifts a few weeks ago, how Jesus distributed them as we were up in the beginning of Ephesians chapter four. But this morning, I wanna talk about how Jesus now is growing his church through those gifts. Let me give you an outline, three levels of church growth, three levels of church growth. Growth, And I, I give it to you like this because I understand that the church is going to be, the foundation will be laid and then it will be built. And that's what Paul is describing in Ephesians 4 as the church is going to be built with us in it. The first level of church growth here is the founding of the church, the founding of the church. The church is founded with the apostles and the prophets in verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets. This is a continuation of what was before the parentheses that he ascended on high in verse 8. He gave gifts to men. Speaking of those gifts, he particularly gave the apostles and the prophets. These are two different groups of people that were used to lay the foundation of the church. The apostles, of course, were the 12 that Jesus had called, had separated from the world, had known them by name, and sent them into the world to turn the world upside down. 11 of them were from Galilee. The only one who was not from Galilee was Judas. He was from Jerusalem. Judas, of course, ends up betraying Christ. The 11 that were from Galilee were not well-educated. They were not powerful or influential. You had fishermen. You had Uh, A zealot, which is like a political activist, borderline terrorist, depending on what you read about zealots. And you had a tax collector. A tax collector. I mean, my goodness. These are the worst of the worst people. They were chosen by Christ individually to take the gospel into the world. They were the foundation of the church. And I say that they were the foundation because when Jesus ascended to heaven, the church had not been built yet. If you see the churches coming from the Old Testament, the church existing in the Old Testament just continuing on to the New Testament, you're not going to rightly understand the point of spiritual gifts or how the apostles are the foundation of the church. It's not going to make a lot of sense. But if you rightly understand that the church began at Pentecost, the church began in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and seals people in their faith, that's the beginning of the church, then you see how the apostles are indeed the foundation of it. Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is put first. The plumb lines go out. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles then, who are the ones who go into the world proclaiming the message of the gospel. They're the ones who are being the foundation of the church. You know from building, when you, when you build something, the, a, a building for example, the first thing you do is you build the foundation. We have in our neighborhood a bunch of trees were just knocked down and they're making like six or eight different little row houses there and Uh, When they first knocked down the trees and started building the row houses, the first thing they put down was the foundation. Before they even dug trenches for the pipes or where the roads are, we couldn't tell where the driveways were. We we couldn't tell how it was going to meet up onto Cherokee, how it was going to connect to the road that went by. We had no idea the layout of this, but we could see the foundations for the houses. That's what they put first. And then you'll build on top of that. And that's the way Jesus built the church. The cornerstone is his death and resurrection on the cross. He is the cornerstone. The apostles were the foundations. They're the ones that brought the gospel into the world. They turned the world upside down. These people certainly did turn the world upside down too. Some of their enemies even accused them of just that in the book of Acts. They said, these are the ones that are turning the world upside down. <laughs> they probably said guilty. <laughs> yes, we are. The Lord sent us to do just that. First Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles. So I think Judas, who killed himself because of his remorse over betraying Christ, is replaced with Paul. Paul then becomes the apostle to the Gentiles with the 11 others from Galilee as the gospel goes into the world. There is no apostolic secession. When the apostles die, they don't hand off their apostolic mantle to somebody else. It terminates with them because they're the foundation You know, it doesn't make sense if you have a foundation, you build a first story, you want to build a second story, you don't pour a new foundation on top of the first story. You would crush your house. The foundation is laid once, and the church is built on top of that. I mention that because all kinds of people teach apostolic succession. Uh, You have in the charismatic or Pentecostal church, they often will teach that the 12 apostles have handed down their apostolic mantle to people throughout time that go all the way to this day. I have mentioned before, but I visited a very large church Charismatic Church up in Northern California. And they have on the the wall of their church, they have a timeline of the 12 apostles and who succeeded them through the hundreds and, you know, 2,000 years of church history all the way to present day. So you could see who the 12 apostles are today. And lo and behold, their pastor was in the line of secession from John. This massive timeline wraps around the wall of the whole church building. And you could buy a rolled-up version in the bookstore if you wanted for that on your house wall. I thought about it, but no way, (laughs) dude. no way Deidre would have allowed that. (laughs) You know, that's just, it's, it's silly. It's not taught in the Bible that the apostles died and handed off their mantle to somebody else who has apostolic authority. This is something that God gave to be the foundation of the church. Same with the prophets. You see the prophets in the New Testament, they are somebody different than the apostles, clearly, and it's not evident in the ESV, but it's The Greek literally says he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets. It's a different group of people here. These prophets were people called by the Lord to minister his word in the time before there was the Bible and before the New Testament had been completed. These prophets were also a temporary gift to the church to help the establishment and the launching of the church. And let me tell you something. I'm sure you know all that, but... Let me tell you something you may not have heard about prophets before, but I think it's so critical to understand how they work in the New Testament. When you see the New Testament prophets, they're always doing one thing. They're proclaiming the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. There's a New Testament focus on prophets bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. This is a huge deal if you remember that in the Old Testament, the promise of the Savior was held inside of Israel. Christ comes and says he's a light to the nations and the gospel should go to the nations, gives his great commission to go to the nations, died, buried, resurrected, ascends to heaven. Then his Holy Spirit comes and seals the church there in Jerusalem. And the angel even says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But they don't go anywhere. They stay there in Jerusalem. It is the prophets that compel them to go out. As persecution comes, it's the prophets who say, you need to go into the world. This is the great mystery that the early believers didn't understand, that the gospel was going to include Jews and Gentiles together in one body. You see that described in Ephesians. That's called the mystery of the gospel. They did not understand that. Even the apostles didn't understand that. Jesus taught about it for 40 days in Acts chapter one, and they didn't understand it. But the prophets came and compelled them to see that the gospel needed to go from the Jews to the Gentiles. You see the prophets first in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, the prophets are gathered together, and the first thing you see them doing in the New Testament is separating Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries to the Gentiles. Even the list of prophets, it highlights their ethnic diversity. When you look at Acts 13, verse 1, it lists the early prophets that were separating Barnabas and Paul. It's Simeon, who is called Niger, speaking of his dark skin, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod. These are three people from three very different, what we'd call ethnic groups, that are bound together here as New Testament prophets that are scattering the church into the Gentile world. When you see prophets described in Ephesians, it's connected to the preaching of the mystery of the Gospels for Jews and Gentiles. When you see them in 1 Corinthians 14, the prophets are preaching a message, often through languages, so that people from different ethnic groups can hear it. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, that outsiders come and are convicted by their sin when they hear the message of the prophets. Gentiles are coming to church, hearing the message of the Jewish Savior, and are convicted by their sin as it's preached against them by these prophets. Prophets. That's New Testament prophets. Prophets, of course, give way in the New Testament to pastors and teachers. We'll see that even in this very verse. There are no more prophets today. I know that there's no more prophets today because there are no more prophets today. I mean, the guys that claim themselves to be prophets today can't even tell you the weather tomorrow, much less, much less anything of actual spiritual significance. I know you all had Baylor winning the NCAA tournament. That does not make you a prophet, okay? <laughs> it does not make you a prophet. The prophets and the apostles were given for the foundation of the church. Well, this gives way to the second level of church growth here, the expansion of the church. You see the founding and now the expanding. That's the next group in verse 11. He gave some to be evangelists. Evangelists. The word evangelist, it specifically means the spreader, the preacher of good news, someone who's always speaking the good news. It's a noun that's only used two other places in the New Testament. One is 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, where Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. To do the work of an evangelist. Paul is telling Timothy, you need to preach the word in season and out of season. Be faithful to correct, teach, rebuke, and train people up in righteousness. And if you're doing that, you will be doing the work of an evangelist. You want to do the work of an evangelist? teach the Bible to people that don't know it and specifically teach it as good news. The word evangelist has wrapped up in it good news. You're a good news speaker. The other time you see the word evangelist in the New Testament is with Philip, Acts 21, verse eight. Philip is called the evangelist, the one who ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch is now recognized in the church as an evangelist. Wherever he goes, he's speaking the good news to people. Evangelist isn't an itinerant ministry where you're going around preaching in a bunch of different places. An evangelist is someone who is known. They open their mouth and they're known for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. You see it in preaching, like I mentioned through Timothy from the pulpit, he's preaching the good news. You see it in street evangelism, like with Philip. You see it in evangelism with people that don't know the the Bible. You see it with a small group of believers. You got 10 believers in a room. If you're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that sense, you're being an evangelist. You're proclaiming the good news This is a gift that God gives the church. Is some people who are particularly good at that. Now, you are all called to evangelize. Amen? Do you believe that? (laughs) I hope so. It doesn't mean you're all good at it, though. (laughs) I mean, that's the reality. It's a gift that God has given some people in the church, but you're all called to do it. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand. We use it as an excuse. Like, I'm not good at evangelism, so I better not try. Wrong. Wrong. That would be like me saying, listen, the gift of mercy is... Is not mine. I do not have the gift of mercy. That means I don't need to be merciful. I don't because the gift of mercy isn't mine. That's not going to get me very far in life. <laughs> I would be lovingly confronted that, hey, you're not being merciful to people. I'm like, yeah, that's not my gift. Well, you still got to do it, though, okay? Ditto with evangelism. Evangelism is not your gift? Okay, that's fine. The Lord's given some to be evangelists. Yet you're still a recipient of the Great Commission. You're still called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're still called to use opportunities you have as a stewardship to preach the gospel. Evangelism still stands as your calling in this world. I mentioned the noun's only used twice, but the the verb is used 50 times in the New Testament. It's a very common word to be a gospel or a good news preacher, to say the good news to people. Modern technology has not canceled out the Great Commission. Sending somebody a YouTube link does not count as evangelism. You are called to be the evangelist. Pressing social needs have not altered the Great Commission. Yes, there's injustice in the world, and yes, there's poverty in the world, and yes, there's crime and, and horrible things in the world, but the Great Commission is not for you to fix those things. The Great Commission is for you to be a spreader of the good news of the gospel. Spiritual problems in the church, even in the church itself, have not passed the importance of evangelism. That's what we are called to be doing. God has given us the church some who are particularly good at that. So you see the evangelists. And next, you see the shepherds and teachers, is how my version of the ESV renders it, the shepherds and teachers. What's kind of hidden in an English translation, some translations say pastors and teachers. What's kind of hidden is that unlike the other names in this list, in the Greek it's very obvious, these last two names, these last two titles, shepherd, teachers, are one person. So you see the apostles, comma, you see the evangelists. A comma, and then here you see the pastor teacher or shepherd teacher. It's one person. I know it's in the Greek, you, it's missing the Oxford comma. That should be your your, uh, your heads up here. There's no comma after shepherds. It's the shepherds and teachers are the same person, the same category of person. Now it's This translation says shepherd. Some translations say pastor. It is the Greek word that is always translated shepherd. It's a very common biblical word. It's always translated shepherd. Some of the older translations render it pastor here. And that's where we get our titles pastor from. I'm a pastor. It comes from a a weird translation of this verse. But a better word than pastor is shepherd. But you can even see the connection. Pastor is from the Latin with the idea of a, a pasture. And that's where shepherds are seen. That's where they're doing their work. So that's what the idea is here that that pastors are shepherds and teachers. The Bible has a lot to say about this category of people. 2 Timothy 2 is probably the most robust description of them. 2 Timothy 2, these pastor teachers are supposed to be, they're described as teachers, as soldiers, as athletes, farmers, workmen, vessels, and slaves. Those are all the examples as Paul goes through 2 Timothy 2 to describe the role of a shepherd or as an elder or as a pastor in the church. And I read that lesson, I think those are kind of, I like my first reading list. I'm like, I like being compared to a teacher, soldier, athlete, farmer, worker, vessel, slave. Like they're kind of, kind of manly descriptions there. But then I read a little bit more carefully. I'm like, you know what? They're not very flattering though either. They're not exalted positions. They're they're designed to highlight work and humility. That's what Paul is going for with all those descriptions: a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a worker, a vessel which just carries liquid, or a, a slave. It's designed to highlight sacrifice, labor, service, hardship. It's not designed to be glamorous. And of course, the best, the most common New Testament phrase, or word to describe this office, is that of a shepherd. Again, a shepherd is a hard worker. He is a protector. He has the the well-being of others at the forefront of his mind. But it is not a glamorous position. But it is the word that is used to describe God in the Old Testament. He's the shepherd of his people Israel. David, of course, being the the shepherd called to be king, fulfilled in Christ. who proclaims that he is the good shepherd. And the New Testament picks up on that and says Christ is the good shepherd. We are his under shepherds. He has given shepherds, under shepherds, to the church in the form of elders, pastors, or teachers. We all labor under Christ. In fact, Paul, in a, Acts chapter 20 gives a sermon to the Ephesian elders. The same people who are going to get the book of Ephesians, Paul's already preached to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He calls them the elders in Ephesus. And he tells them in Acts chapter 20, they need to shepherd the flock of God by protecting them, war- warning them of false teachers, w- warning off the false teachers, correcting the flock, guarding the flock, caring for the flock. That's what a shepherd does. In Acts 14, verse 23, Luke says that Paul's goal was to appoint elders or shepherds in every city. Then every church he plants, he wants to raise up elders or pastors or shepherds that are there. When you take all of this together, what the New Testament describes about this, and there's a lot more that I, even that I have, we don't have time to talk about. You understand the New Testament that uses different words for the same person. Pastor or shepherd, elder, overseer, sometimes translated bishop or presbytery, it's the same word for overseer. Those people are all the same person. Every elder should be a pastor. Every overseer should be an elder. There should be nobody exercising spiritual oversight in a church that is not an elder of the church. There should be no elders of the church that are not pastors in the church. And I mention this because in our American vernacular, we attribute the word pastor as a career calling. Like the pastor is the one who's paid. That's different than the elders. It's a very unhealthy dynamic. Pastor, elder, bishop are all interchangeable terms. Now we don't use the word bishop because of Catholicism and the Pentecostal bishops with, you know, like 17 gold crosses around their neck and their Mercedes. That's not, <laughs> that's not what we're going for with the word bishop. So we don't use the word bishop. But I want you, I want to be so clear about this. Do you understand in the New Testament church, the pastors are all elders, and the elders are all pastors. It's the same group of people. In that group of people, there is one, this is where my job title comes from, there's one who's known as the teaching pastor, or the pastor-teacher, or here, the shepherd-teacher. That's, that's the person here that stands in front of the congregation and teaches. My job title at Emmanuel comes from this verse. Pastor-teacher, or teaching pastor is how we say it. It's the person that is teaching the congregation. Now, he's not the only elder, but every elder should be known for teaching. There should be no elders at a church that are not commonly teaching. Not teaching from the pulpit, but teaching in Sunday school or teaching in ABFs or teaching in Bible studies. That's a basic function of an elder. Elders should be teaching. If you are at a church and your elders are not the ones teaching, that is a huge problem. And the teaching pastor, by the way, is not an employee of the elders. He is one of the elders. It's a very common thing in American evangelicalism to view the teaching pastor as the employee and the elders as the boss. And the teaching pastor works for the elders. Very unhealthy dynamic. The teaching pastor is an elder. He's one of the elders. The elders function in unison. They function together. All of the elders are pastors, which is another way of saying all of the elders are caring for the souls of the congregation. That's what a pastor means, someone who's shepherding, who's caring. All of the elders should be pastors. All of the elders should be teaching. All of the elders should be exercising oversight of the congregation. That is what God gives to build the church. The apostles and prophets faded away. Evangelists are expanding the church by spreading the good news and more people are added to the church. And the pastors and elders or pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers are the ones that are caring for the congregation that comes. And I want to just harp on this word caring or pastoring here. It's this idea that the pastors or the elders keep watch over your soul. They warn you about false doctrine. They confront you in sin. They encourage you in godliness. That's what God has called us to do. Preaching and teaching are linked oftentimes in the New Testament. First Timothy 5 verse 17 is where Paul says that the elder who is devoted specifically to preaching and teaching is the one who should be paid. But it's often connected to Acts 15 verse 35 connects preaching to teaching. Romans 2 21 connects preaching to teaching. It's the same kind of activity. It's the same kind of activity. We can get sometimes too precise in trying to distinguish between preaching and teaching. What's preaching and what's teaching? I feel like if you have to ask that question, what's the difference between preaching and teaching, you've never heard preaching. (laughs) If you know the difference, you've heard preaching. Preaching should wake you up and motivate you and compel you, and teaching is more instructive, and yet nevertheless, both of them are connected to the office of an elder or a pastor. Now something should stand out for you here. Do you notice that the Bible never commands the church to raise up apostles and prophets. They never command to disciple people into future elders, I mean, to future apostles or future prophets, recognize who in the congregation is a good prophet or a good apostle and appoint them as an apostle and send them into the world. That's not in the New Testament because apostles and prophets have run their course. But you know what the church is often called to do? It's a huge part of church ministry is to train up future pastors and elders to train them up. God, of course, calls people to ministry, but that calling is given through faithful men that disciple other faithful men to preach the word to the world. First Timothy 4, verse 14 describes being a shepherd or a pastor as an elder as a gift given by God, but affirmed through the laying on of hands of other elders. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, take what you've learned from other godly men and give it to younger men, pass it along. That's a huge part of our philosophy of ministry. Our church exists to train up future pastors and preachers, to lay hands on them as elders, to separate them from the congregation and send them into the world to be the next generation of pastors. That's why we partner with the, the Master Seminary, to train people up, to train future pastors up that do just that. It is a huge part of our philosophy of ministry. It's what God has called the church to do, to train up these future pastors and shepherds, teach them how to shepherd, teach them how to preach, and then send them into the world. So that's what God has given to grow the church, is those three components. The foundation, the expansion, and then the building itself, the actual shepherding of the congregation. I want to dig down on the third one a little bit, because that's where Paul goes, and gives you a couple applications of the building of the church. There's three applications of what happens when the church is built this way. First is that the pastors should be equipping The congregation, the pastors are called by this to equip, and you see this in verse 12. The pastors and teachers or the pastor, teacher, the teaching pastor, however you render it. Verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God has called the pastors to equip the congregation. We do that through guiding the congregation, caring for the congregation, having spiritual oversight of the congregation... That's how God fulfills his Christ-ordained mandate of evangelizing the world, through training up people that can do that. The pastors then equip the congregation to take the gospel into the world. We gather together to worship. We scatter into the world to evangelize. You know, your week is so long. There's so much you have going on in your week. You work 40 hours. I had somebody in the Navy tell me, oh, I, I work a Navy half day. That means I only work 80 hours a week. <laughs> you work so much. You have family demands that are so intense. So intense. You, some of you are parenting little kids that just require so much energy and they're running around and it just drains you. And it's just, and the kids get older and they drain you even more. <laughs> I remember asking a guy who was deciphering me a couple of years ago, <laughs> Rob, Rob Hughes, I asked him, you know, <laughs> When do things calm down? When do things get slower in life? And he almost spilled his coffee. He laughed so loud. (laughs) I mean, your lives are so busy with the demands of family and work and all this stuff. And the world is just like pulling at your feet and trying to... The tidal wave of the world, it's like an undertow. It grabs you and just pulls you out of the church. And the waves of our culture are beating on your door all the time. And we have one day, Sunday... And we have, for many of you, just a few hours, an hour and a half Sunday morning. That's what we have to equip you in light of all that you're getting through the week. We have this little hour and a half Sunday morning to equip you to stand against the tidal wave of the world, to, not, to guard your soul so you don't get sucked out into the world. To learn how to recognize worldliness and the materialism and all the dangers of the world and to equip you to be mature believers in Jesus Christ. That's the little window of time we have. That's what the church exists for. I mean, that's the function of the church. To make you into mature followers of Christ by equipping you. I'm called to equip you. And preaching is obviously the most effective way of doing that because you're all here at once. (laughs) You're all hearing the same thing. So hopefully my sermons confront sin and encourage the weak and build up the strong and compel you to go do ministry during the week. But I want to make sure you understand that's what the church exists for. It's for the pastors to equip, the pastors and elders to equip the congregation. This is predominantly about Sunday mornings. This goes back to where I started earlier. What is the function of our corporate worship gathering? It's to worship. It's to worship Jesus Christ. And non-believers are not good at worshiping. <laughs> So again, I hope non-believers come and I hope they feel convicted of their sin and I hope they hear the gospel preach, and I hope they see you worshiping with passion and I hope they get convicted by that and they, they want to build themselves up into godliness by being converted to Christ. But the function of our worship service is to equip the believers. That's what I feel God has called us to do. That's our philosophy of ministry here, to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. We have such a short period of time. That's why it's a supernatural activity. The Bible does this work in you. That's why teaching is the thing that's given to us to do. We teach you to equip you. And as you are taught, you become equipped. That's the kind of the tautology here. As you're taught, you become equipped, and you're equipped by the teaching. So first, the pastor's equip. I can't do the work of the ministry. I have to equip others to do it, which leads to the second point. The pastor's equipping leads to the saints working. This is the second application. First application is to the elders. Elders need to view their job at the church as equipping the saints. The second application, the saints need to view their job as doing the work of the ministry. The church is not a spectator sport. Not a spectator sport. You are a congregation, not an audience, and that is a huge difference. An audience comes and files in and sits in nice comfortable chairs and watches something on the stage and then leaves and maybe critiques it on their way home and maybe comes back next week. That's an audience. That is not what church is built for. The church has a congregation, not an audience. Congregation is a group of believers who are congregated together at one time in one place. That's what you are. You're a congregation. This is a, a big important deal. If you're coming to church just to observe, then you're not really part of the congregation. You need to come to church and serve. When we redid the worship center a couple of years ago, there was some talk of putting in the movie theater style seating in the in the church because there was there's legitimate reasons to do it. Because you can fit more people is one, because you guys don't sit that close together although you are this morning remarkably well. Good job. But <laughs> but the idea with the theater style seating is you can fit more people and you know blah 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 blah. blah. And but there's just such a fundamental thing that's lost I think. I mean, I, I I begged. This is one of the times in my life where I was like, Lord, please help. And I went to some of the elders and said, please do not do that. Please, no. I want to lay down. I want to die on this hill. This will be a hill I'll die on right here. I want pews because I want you to understand that you are in a congregation. You're not watching a movie. Nobody has ever sat in a pew and goes, wow, this is comfortable. This is so comfortable. <laughs> no. This, this job is not to make you feel comfortable. Its job is to make you feel like a congregation gathered together to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Woe to the pastor who thinks he can do the work of the ministry. And woe to the congregation who thinks that the pastor's job is to do the work of the ministry. A better analogy might be a coach and a, a team. You know, the elders can coach you. But I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I'm coaching soccer right now. The team is doing great. I can't get on the field and play for them. And it's a high school team. I can't be like, ref, can I just have 10 minutes in the field, please? <laughs> Not allowed. I'd go to jail probably is what would happen. The pastor's job is to equip. The congregation is a team on the field that plays. So you ga- the game is not here at church, by the way. This is not the game. This is practice. So the congregation gathers. They're equipped. We train together. Then we scatter into the world to do the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? To encourage one another, to, to provoke one another towards godliness, and to evangelize and reach the lost world. The church's job gathered is to equip to build up the body and to send you into the church to live that out. This is why Jesus gives gifts to all believers so all believers can have part of doing the work of the ministry. You're all gifted to do just that. And when I preached on spiritual gifts a few weeks ago, I talked about the different ways you can serve, but here's the most basic way you can serve in the church. The most basic way is you can get to know other believers and encourage them in their life. That's it. That's it. Deidre and I had a family over, a couple over that we did premarital with uh, a couple months ago. And they've now been married. It's like their three-month checkup kind of thing. And they're at a new church together up in Baltimore. And uh, they're loving their church. And they they were telling us, you know, they show up to church for the first time and right away met so many people that were inviting them to lunch and to dinner. And they've been there for a couple uh, months now. And it's like every Sunday they meet a new couple that's inviting them over for lunch or for dinner. And that's just a great way for them to get involved. And I'm hearing that as a pastor going... I'm so, Emmanuel is like that, but I hope we're like that even more. I hope that you realize the best way you can serve in the church is getting to know people around you, inviting. you got to eat with somebody. You may as well make it a Christian, huh? <laughs> invite people over to your house for lunch or for dinner or just talk in the hallway and minister to people that way. Develop rich. Our church is so transient. People, I bet half of you are here for two or three years, and then you're gone somewhere else. So if you see somebody you don't know in the hallway, look, the odds are 50-50 they're new here, Okay. <laughs> They won't be insulted by you saying hi. You're probably new here, so you can get away with it. Say hi to people and greet people, and that's the best way you can do the work of the ministry. I mean, we need people to serve in nursery or in the parking lot or security or the, the soundboard, and we need all those kind of things. But most of all, we need people who know and encourage and love each other and live life together, talking about Jesus with one another. That can't be the pastor's job to welcome everybody, and to encourage everyone in Christlikeness. It has to be the congregations doing the work of the ministry. And if that happens, if the pastors equip the congregation and the saints work, then thirdly, the body will be built up. The body will be built up. And I know we said we'd save verse 13 to next week, but I don't want to cheat and just get the phrase, the end of verse 12, building up the body of Christ. That's defined in verse 13, attaining the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood the stature and the fullness of Christ. Over and over again, Paul's saying, you are mature when you think like Christ, when you have the mind of Christ, and you act like Christ, and you look at the world like Christ. You're mature when you grow up and look like Jesus Christ. That is the goal of the church, to make people into Christ-likeness. Nobody comes to church who's good enough to be part of the church. You get that. Nobody comes to the church who is Christ-like. Everybody comes to the church in a work in progress. And what we do is we build people up into maturity. We build them into maturity. Notice a change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's no talk like this at all. The function of the sacrificial system was not to make mature followers of God. Sacrificial system was you brought a sacrifice forward that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The sacrifice had to be spotless and it pointed forward to Christ. New Testament, you don't bring an animal to church. Please don't bring an animal to church <laughs> New Testament, you are the sacrifice. You are the sacrifice. You are supposed to be spotless. Your life is the sacrifice. And the churches exist to grow you into maturity so that your life is a better sacrifice. So how does this all fit together? Well, this is our philosophy of ministry, to teach the saints. That's the word that Paul uses here, to teach the saints doctrine, because when you get the doctrinal structures in your mind, then you have the space in between to live a life of love and godliness. If you don't have doctrine, you can't love each other. You don't have doctrine, you can't have unity. You don't have doctrine, you can't do the work of the ministry. So we gather to equip by teaching the doctrine that you then put into practice as you love one another and scatter into the world, being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We recognize that we are all inadequate. We recognize that we all fail. We recognize we're all immature in some regards and that we need the church to provoke one another to grow into godliness. And so part of what marks our philosophy of ministry is a high view of God and a low view of man. We recognize that man is the cause of all our problems and God is the only solution. A high view of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the grave and apart from him there is no hope for the world or for us. That salvation is found in Christ alone, not in works or not in effort, not in being good to others and doing kind things or voting the right way or giving money to the poor or any of those things do not lead to salvation. Salvation comes through Christ alone and it is supernatural that God saves whom he's going to save. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves people and he saves people through the preaching of his word. That's the means by which he chooses to use to save people. And so the best thing the church can do to reach the loss is gather to equip the saints to preach the word who scatter with hearts filled with the word into the world to share the word with those that don't know it. That's what our church exists to do, to make mature followers of Jesus Christ by teaching you to walk in his ways, to love him, and to be ambassadors of him to this lost world. When you do that, you view Sunday as the time we gather, and the week as the time we scatter to do the work of the ministry. And if you live that out, you will recognize that the church of Jesus Christ is being built, and the gates of hell itself will not stop her. Lord, we're grateful that you've chosen this time in world history for us to live and for us to be part of this precious church. Emmanuel is a precious church. You have given your own blood for it and for us. This congregation is precious. Some that have been here 55 years, they've devoted their life to this congregation. Some that have been here for their first Sunday right now. And it's such a precious congregation with people that have sacrificed so much to build the physical building, so much to build the spiritual building as they've poured into each other's lives for generations here. We don't take any of this for granted. Churches like this don't fall from the sky. They're built by the faithful labor of elders and pastors and shepherds that you've granted them. So we pray that we would be good recipients. As Paul tells Timothy, we pray that we would receive the the baton, that what you have taught the pastors and elders that went before us, we would receive and that we in turn would teach others. I pray for this congregation that as we are marked by love and fellowship towards each other, you would continue to build the church. For those that are unloving or refuse fellowship, I pray that they would be convicted of their sins and they would repent of them and, and become loving and become fellowshipping saints through which your body will be built and the gospel of Jesus Christ, would be glorified, that would be adorned with an inward beauty and not an external glamour. Make our church one that cares about the heart, that cares about love, that cares about truth. And because we care about truth and doctrine, we care about each other. Bind our hearts together through shared affection and shared spiritual experience here at Emmanuel. As we wave the flag of Jesus Christ, you have conquered the grave. You have risen. You ascend to heaven even now. And we remain on earth to do your work, to be your body. Help us live like you. We are your body, Jesus. We want to resemble you. Help us do just that even this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you.